0: Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archanect Sessions, episode 160. On today's show, Donna, Ken, and I are joined by Francis Anderton. For those of our listeners based in L.A., Francis's voice is probably very familiar to you. Francis is the host of DNA, the radio show that focuses on architecture and design on KCRW, the local favorite station among architects in the Southern California region. A few weeks ago, Frances broke the news on Twitter that she would be leaving the beloved show at the end of the year after an 18-year run. Today, she joins us to tell us about this move, the backstory behind her transition from architecture student to journalist to radio personality, and she gives us a hint at what she'll be doing next. Later in the episode, the four of us discuss some of the bigger news stories that help define what 2020 meant for architects, and we also share what we're each looking forward to as we enter into the new year. Francis, thank you so much for joining us on this year-end episode of connect Sessions. How are well, you doing?
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, Paul. It's lovely to join you. And um, all things considered, I'm doing fine. I'm lucky to have my health and my family and... I'm, you know, like many people, my year has been a little bit shaken up, you know, by many things COVID related and otherwise, and so I'm taking a breather with this holiday that we have to, I guess, think about it all.
0: Well, there's no better time to uh, to spend some time to reflect right now. I, I think you you shocked the the architecture and uh, Los Angeles communities when you announced on Twitter. A little while ago that you will be leaving your uh, KCRW, which is a local radio station here in Los Angeles, uh, the Santa Monica Public Radio Station and NPR station. And, you know, a lot of the city, especially the, the creative communities, have just become familiar with you and your show and your voice over the years. Just, you know, as as KCRW is just streamed in the background across offices all over L.A., how it's been 18 years since you started that show. What's going on?
1: Well, you know, the radio station itself is going through some changes. It is itself in the process of transition and its culture is evolving at the station. And I was definitely getting to a point where, where I was feeling that, that if the station, it itself needed to sort of change which it does to sort of stay dynamic and fresh you know then i also should be part of that change so there's a there's a whole sort of bunch of reasons that contributed to me making the decision to take the buyout but none of those reasons had to do with the show itself and so i i you know you get to a place in an institution where it's where it becomes kind of time for for one to sort of perhaps step away, you know, before you start to feel like your piece of the furniture. So it's more it was more things having to do with with the internal culture that made me feel like it was time for new people to come in, you know, and people people such as myself to step away. And so so anyway, in terms of the show, I mean, I have an arrangement with the station that I'll. I'm I'm going to continue being involved with design and architecture and programming around design and architecture and at least for the foreseeable future I'm able to keep the name DNA so DNA the brand and even possibly the show hasn't necessarily gone it's more that the it's the staff position that I relinquished and and to be honest even in relinquishing the staff position I'm not necessarily relinquishing the opportunities to be on that station. In in fact, for the first two months of 2021, I'm going to be on every week with a series that I that I've produced on the topic of waste. And so anyway, anyway, I always say about KCAW, you know, it's like Hotel California, you can check out but you never leave. <laughs> so um so it's a bit more fluid than I actually I actually wasn't even planning to tweet anything. It's just that our names, the names of the people that took the buyout found their way to the LA Times. And so people started tweeting about it. So I then had to rush in and then tweet myself so that things didn't kind of get too runaway. But it is a little bit more nuanced than that suggested.
0: Well, going back to uh, that tweet and the... The conversation that quickly formed after you tweeted that—you mentioned the possibility of starting a goat farm. I, I believe <laughs> uh, that a lot of people quickly, uh, you know, their their ears perked up and and thought that that was a great idea. And I've I've recently read that that you're actually starting a a new initiative called Goat Wisdom to Go, which I thought was a really interesting reference to that to that comment you made. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? <laughs>
1: I'm so glad you've picked up on that. Honestly, that was one of those really amazing revelatory things. And I will say that one of the upsides of sort of this sad departure from KCRW, because it is personally sad, is that things pop at you out of the woodwork that you really didn't anticipate. So, for example, with that tweet about the goat farm. OK, so I actually do love goats, but I love them in a kind of... The, the, I've got a goat on my calendar or I love goats if I'm in the English countryside and there's a goat waddling around and I, and it is true my husband and I actually when we were back in England we actually did go and visit a goat farm so it's not completely a fantasy but it's definitely it's definitely more in the unreality box than the reality box mm-hmm. but anyway so then when that tweet happened and I thought oh my god I better say something and I've got to sort of take control of this conversation before it runs out of control and I just popped in that remark really more or less as a joke, actually. And it was incredible how much reaction I got to the goat piece, you know, (laughs) more than the architecture piece. And so many people (laughs) stepped forward with, um, I agree with you, I love goats too. Come to Texas, there's great goat farming land in Texas. It went on and on. I even got an email from Greg Lynn talking about the goat that he had when he was 15 and how he also (laughs) loved the idea of a goat farm. And that really kind of struck a chord. And I i i thought wow that's amazing it either means that there's a lot of us who are at an age where we're all starting to perhaps fantasize about a more rural existence or or an existence yes that's more attached with flora and fauna and we and we sort of get off the the the, the get out of the rat race or off the treadmill or whatever so i thought it's either tapped into that or there is something specific to goats that people actually <laughs> really like, like more than cows, sheep, dogs, whatever. Or
0: maybe it's just that everybody hates people right now.
1: Or maybe yeah, maybe everybody hates people. Well, it might and and I do think that part of getting older is that oddly, you become, I don't want to say you hate people, but you might become more realistic about people, you know? But anyway, so I put out the goat remark and got all this response and I thought, oh my God. I've got two options here. Either I actually do start the goat farm, I just sort of deliver, you know, I deliver and then I invite people to come to the goat farm. Or I, or I just play with it. I just sort of play with the idea of it. And somehow out of that, I wound up having this notion of having these conversations that really played into that piece of goatiness that many of us, I think, respond to, which is we think that goats are somehow wise, you know? We actually have no idea if they are or not, but we, we think that they've got, or at least I think that that there's some sort of w- wisdom of the ancients in their funny faces, you know? And then they, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. they clamber up those mountains, you know, undeterred by thistles yeah. and stones and rocks, so there's something particular to the goat sensibility, and also they have that look in their faces of thinking that humans are pretty idiotic. So, yes. um, so then again, <laughs> they're sort of looking down those long noses they have, and and sort of laughing quietly to themselves. So I thought that all of those things would play rather nicely into the idea of conversations about wisdom, you know, about stuff that people have gleaned over the years. And I should add that, you know, where I'm getting older. And so I am starting to reflect on things in different ways. But also, I know lots of other people who've got older. And those people... I've met a lot of people with really interesting stuff to say that doesn't necessarily fall into the DNA format, you know. And so, and so why not why not just have conversations with people that are really interesting about things that are kind of meaningful. And I will say also and this pertains to kind of the times that we're in. I do think that what is going on generally in media right now is a lot of responding to the social media mob. You know, the social media mob is kind of informing the conversations that happen, the responses to conversations, the overreactions to things that are said or done, and I found all that to be kind of quite wearing actually, quite sort of wearing on the nerves. And in that sort of the the kind of more considered position on things that you might find in people who have lived a bit longer is pretty much being kind of marginalized in mainstream media, I think. I I feel, I feel, I shouldn't say I know, but I feel it is. And so I think I just wanted to respond to all of those things, and that's why I had the idea. And then I asked my daughter, since she has to help out with all the tech stuff, to get me the um, domain name, and then we couldn't get the domain name, because if you actually looked for goatwisdom.com, you found websites literally about how to breed a goat, you know, how to, how to milk a goat <laughs> mm-hmm, on goatwisdom.com. So we had, to, we had to alter it. So we altered it. My husband suggested to go. I think he suggested to go. So it became goat wisdom to go. You see, like a takeout, like a takeout coffee or something. So anyway, that was a long and convoluted explanation. <laughs> but you're the first to ask me about it, Paul. So you're the first to get the full explainer
0: well I think awesome. it's it's a brilliant idea I mean especially you know if you look at the amount of change that our culture around the world has gone through in the last 20 years it's it's incredible I, I don't think there's been a time in you know the last few hundred years where there has been su- such a drastic change in the way that people live and the way they absorb content and, the, and their perspective on the world so I mean I, it seems like a better time than ever to to kind of really listen to the older population, you know, with with a perspective that is completely foreign to the youth of today.
1: Yes. And one of my first interviews, not that he knows it yet, because I haven't told him, but one of my first interviews will be Warren Olney, who I came to the station to I, I came to KCW to volunteer for Warren Olney, who is a journalist with a remarkable, um, you know, deep roots in California, incredible knowledge about California, been in the news business since the 1950s or early 60s, and hosted which Well A, for which I worked for many years, and then to the point, the national show. And Warren was a difficult character, but I worshipped him. I mean, to me, he embodied everything that i value about good journalism sort of sort of journalism with real integrity and a genuine interest in competing perspectives a genuine empathy for people of all stripes and and a sort of inter, an, an openness and an intellectual heft that was completely accessible nonetheless to everybody all those qualities and And he is someone that came to radio because he saw media, he saw broadcast news changing. He experienced the rise of news as entertainment. He didn't like it. He wound up at KCRW doing radio, made made radio, made an incredible radio news program following the 1992 civil unrest. He was absolutely my model. And what he represents has been has been seriously had pot shots taken at it in the last in the last few years because again, I psych social media, social media has has become has become the um arbiter of who's right, what's in, what's out, who's wrong who who should be cancelled, blah blah blah, and the kind of just openness to different perspectives from a neutral place or and a place of of real curiosity is so vital. And when we see what happened in the polarization of the last, especially the last four years, you know, in the administration, which did rather intensify polarizing tendencies that were already there, you know, that kind of approach is so important. So anyway, that's another long answer, but it, tells you the kind of wisdom that hopefully one will hear about on goat wisdom to go but also I'm also telling you something about media and journalism which I know you wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, your conversation with Warren Olney is going to be fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm especially interested in in how a perspective like his can reflect on on, you know, what the last few decades have looked like. Yeah. I mean, regarding journalism, well, let's go back. What what brought you to L.A.?
1: what brought me to L.A. was architecture. I'll try and condense that story. So I went to architecture school in London. Straight after architecture school, I wound up as an assistant editor at the Architecture Review magazine. My first assignment was to go to Los Angeles in 1987 and check out the new subversive, design that was coming out of Los Angeles. I came here in September, 1987. I met Frank, I met Tom, I met Craig Hodgetts, I met Eric, I met Barton Phelps, Barton Myers, Fred Fisher Frank Israel all all men I confess to say but I guess that's sort of more the way it was then my great friend the man that became my great friend John Chase before he then passed in 2010 I met a whole scene in LA loved it loved it loved it loved it even though I was baffled by a region that was completely car dependent but still loved it like, <laughs> like a lot of people do including British people so then I just vowed to move back and I finally moved to in 91 and I came here, I managed through contacts that I made here to to get a position as as editor of the AIA's newsletter, LA Architect, and that's what I came to do. And it got me an H one B visa, and I was working away on that. And then April of 1992 came the civil unrest, came the Rodney King riots, and that was a pretty astounding experience and it took and anyway which well a started the radio show which well a and i just thought wow this is incredible this show it's having a conversation about the urban environment or the environment around us that's so different from the one that i was used to within the architecture bubble and not that i don't love architecture i completely do and i and i love being in the architecture bubble but also also i thought something was missing and in terms of understanding kind of where the power lies, you know, and how decisions get made and how things really get built. Because it obviously wasn't the architect that was driving what really got built. So anyway, I just decided I had to work for Warren Olney, but it wasn't going to happen straight away. So I started freelance writing about architecture. Mainly I became a sort of, not on staff, but I became a correspondent for the New York Times for a while, just writing for them about hot West Coast design, you know. And then I was able to I was able to have just enough freelance work that I could go to KCW and volunteer for Warren, and it was very tight. The money was exceedingly tight. So, but I was just was so determined to volunteer for Warren, and then, and then I then I did. And once I'd been working for Warren for a while, I got this weird sensation of 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 realizing that much his conversations were you know, compelling and important in so many ways, there was a piece that was being left out, which actually was design and architecture. Because So I would find that with Warren, we'd be talking about, you know, stuff of importance, I don't know, the jail system or the school district or, or healthcare or whatever. And he would never be interested in a designer's perspective on it, or an architect or a planner's perspective, because because he, t- just as the architecture bubble wasn't used to conversing in the public realm, nor was the public realm used to conversations about design and architecture. It sort of wasn't, it wasn't something that you heard policymakers talk about much. Many people in, in policy and politics are, are lawyers by training. They're not architects or designers. It's not the language they speak. So, and Warren's family is all politicians and lawyers. So I would bring up design and architecture as an angle that we should be covering as part of our conversations. And somehow, one thing led to another, and Ruth Seymour, who was the then general manager of KCRW, said, we used to have the show politics of culture, and there was a drama that is still going on, by the way, a drama about LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. This happened in 2002, and Rem Koolhaas had won the commission to do the expansion, and he proposed tearing down four buildings, which, funnily enough, now Peter Zumthor is doing. And... Ruth Seymour, who ran the station, was kind of like really, really struck by this and said, "Whoa, here's an architecture story we actually should be talking about." And she made me go on air just once as a one-off in a in a within the framework of a series that we ran called Politics of Culture. And she just said, "Do this one show, talk to people about LACMA and whether it should whether those buildings should come down. And then out of that, she realised that there was actually really interesting stories in architecture. So she then said, let's create a design show, but we'll do it once a month. She said specifically, we'll do it once a month because there isn't really an audience for it. And it's really interesting how that happens. And anyway, over the years, it evolved into being much more frequent and it took on much more of a position. And then podcasting started. And once podcasting started, then you get all these, then many other voices entered into the audio Sphere, you know, with design stories, and so in that sense, DNA was doing something fairly unusual when it started, and um, um, so there's there's a lot of there's a big there's a big landscape of voices now about design and architecture, which is actually another reason why I feel that there's so, m- so there's so much talent out there now.
0: Were you always drawn to? audio as a as a medium for journalism or did you just happen to fall into that as you were pursuing your your work with uh Warren Olney?
1: the latter the latter i mean mm-hmm. england has great radio i grew up with everybody always listening to either radio 1 radio 2 radio 3 or radio 4 and um i actually to be honest i wasn't a big funnily enough i wasn't a big radio listener i certainly i certainly loved music but no i was more attracted to the visuals and then I was more attracted to writing it was hearing Warren hearing Warren and I just thought wow that's an amazing way to converse because I did realize that having done print for a while that that I was manipulating what people said you know I would talk to people and then I would choose I would pick and choose from them what 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 how they were represented you know through a quote I chose and that, there's a validity to all of that, but I loved the I loved the truth of what Warren was doing. I loved how every because it was live, people said what they said. you know it was what you're doing with this <laughs> it was um unvarnished, and um of course, Warren had the remarkable skills in in guiding the conversation so that so that he would he would sort of drive people towards towards a point. But, but but nonetheless, it was still their voices. I, I, so anyway, it was that that really interested me. And so, so as a consequence, what's been quite interesting to me in, in radio uh, or in audio storytelling is in the last 10 or 15 years, really ever since the advent of this American life, audio mm-hmm. storytelling has become very um, highly produced. You know, the technology permitted it we all of a sudden all had access to these to these audio technologies where we could make highly ornate radio productions very different to what Warren did with Warren it was four people on a phone and that was it four people on a phone in a conversation i personally loved that i never particularly felt the need for to do the highly uh, produced and highly ornate sort of intercutting and all sorts of sound popping up here and there and music and and, it, and, and that's not to in any way suggest that it, that isn't great. You know, that is a real art form in itself and we have a lot more of it at our station and there is a lot more emphasis on delivering radio in that way and you have shows like 99% Invisible that are the sine qua non of that particular approach to just to, to dredge up some old Latin. So, um, but but at the end of the day, I still love just that straightforward conversation.
2: Going back to the your comment that there are so many more voices in the landscape. There's a much bigger landscape of voices talking about design and architecture across the this media spectrum right now. What can you say about the maybe rising level of Consumption of that conversation by people who are not designers. As you said, when you started, they didn't think there was enough interest for more than a monthly program. Do you really feel that there's a much broader interest? in that design topic right now.
1: Yes, I do. And what's really fascinating about it is, well, let's say, one first. I would say is, did we really ever know that there wasn't an audience for it? There was kind of an assumption that there wasn't an audience for it. Um, (laughs) It wasn't actually proven. I mean, and, and I will say that back in the 1980s, when there wasn't much coverage of architecture in the media in the UK either, and then Prince Charles, started complaining about um, mod- public housing and modernist architecture and all of a sudden like thousands millions of people came out of the woodwork and said he's right you know it's like whoa there's been this whole there's been this th- these 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 be, people have been very feeling very strongly about their built environment, but nobody actually bothered to check, you know. So anyway, so that would be my my first answer, but my second answer is, yes, though, is a there's a huge interest, it seems to me, in design. And what's really fascinating about where that interest lies is how much that interest lies in urban issues and planning. and, Community building and whether or not there should be a bike lane. And so, radio and all the freedoms that we now have with radio technology has intersected with a rise of people taking, getting empowered about their own. Their own infrastructure, their own built environment, and so that both of those are reside with millennials. You know, millennials are yeah. very, very interested in, in the urban fabric, and they're very, very interested in this American lifestyle radio storytelling. So the two have kind of intersected, I think. But I will say that even in LA, when I first started DNA, and I would explain to people what I was doing, was doing, there'd be a cohort in LA that would say, "But LA doesn't even have any architecture." And then, and I'd say, and I would be like, I'm coming from outside and I'm telling you that you have an incredible architecture legacy. But there'd also be this other cohort that was completely passionate about LA architecture and was, you know, getting involved in conservation fights and preservation and certainly getting involved in fights about whether or not buildings should go up in their neighborhood. And, And then LA, it's a city of creatives, you know. Just yeah. to get back to how Paul began, there's a lot of people in production design and and fashion design and toy design and video game design and on and on mm-hmm. it goes. And all mm-hmm. those people have tend to have broader design interests. So if they're interested mm-hmm. in fashion, they're also interested in architecture. So anyway, I'm jumping around here. I think the interest was there. I think radio hadn't felt it was the venue to... To serve that interest. I also think that now there is an intense level engagement with the urban fabric.
0: The thing that probably disappointed me the most when I heard that you were going to be leaving KCRW was that it wasn't so much about my own kind of selfish disappointment, because I know that you're going to be going on to other exciting things and, and uh the architecture community especially will follow you there. But the the fact that that dna has been on kcrw for so long has put the topics that you've covered about design and architecture in front of the wider audience that listens to kcrw whether or not they want to they want to pursue you know listening to stories about architecture or not you know we're we're living in a in a in an on-demand culture right now where people can, can listen to or watch or read anything they want at any time, which is great, but it also starts to create, you know, these, these, uh, microcultures, you know, within our culture, which we're seeing a lot, you know, we're seeing the, uh, the, 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 uh, potential drawbacks to that right now. And, you know, our, in our, uh, political, division and a lot of a lot of areas of our culture, especially here in the U- United States. W- what is what is your thought about that? I mean, where like do you are you concerned that that Los Angeles in general will kind of lose touch with with architecture and design if it's if it's being taken away from from radio and, and you know, newspapers around the country as well are are dropping architecture critics like never before. Um, does that concern you?
1: Yes, I mean, it does. And in a way, this is the exact, this suggests the opposite argument to what I've just discussed with Donna about the seeming rise Uh. of Of interest by a lot of people in their built environment that has intersected with the rise of access to technologies to be able to tell stories about it. So what you're just alluding to is kind of suggests the opposite of that, or it suggests that, yes, there is this strong interest, but the numbers are not that high. And I think that's probably what's going on. I think that all the media, they're all the so-called mainstream media, because as you say there is all this on demand culture now so mainstream media is now fighting to survive within a universe where people can absolutely go to ma- many many sources and they never need to look at the New York Times or CNN or turn on NPR so so yes these big these big um giants of broadcasting and media they are also trying to stay relevant and figure out how to navigate the current media landscape, and it's really incredibly tricky, and I don't know that anyone's fully figured it out. Things are changing so fast. So yes, there is a question: Why is it that all the newspapers were cancelling their their architectural critics? Why is it that Curbed, LA, which was marvellous, you know, why couldn't it um, survive in this media landscape? And in the case of KCRW, in fact, even before I took the buyout, DNA itself had already evolved. I was doing a podcast but I wasn't doing the broadcast show instead I was doing reports on our daily shows. I'd sort of I'd sort of evolved into a kind of design correspondent to each of our shows. So so actually in 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 one way our station had had decided that they needed to t- get the DNA sort of dropped in and reach our mainstream audience. But on the other hand They'd also determined that it didn't need its own show. So it was unclear to me quite what that signaled. It may have signaled that actually we were we'd succeeded too well, and that that now it was understood that it's sim- that DNA could simply sit within our general current affairs shows like Greater LA and Press Play, and there would be an audience for it. But having said that, but having said that, at the same time, all media, and I think it includes KCIW, are trying to figure out how to reach new, young audiences. And I'm not sure if architectural critics fit into the into the, that calculus, because otherwise they would keep them at the newspapers. They art certainly rose as something that seemed to be more important to people. A, a larger audience than than architecture that was certainly on the rise and you you saw that at the New York Times where Michael Kim, Kimmelman the art and art critic actually became the architecture critic yeah it is worrying it is worrying Paul it, it is because all of us who are on this line will agree that our built environment Kind of matters. Our built fabric matters. It shapes who we are. More than kind of. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, and I, you know, I I know we're we're going to jump into some of the bigger news stories a little later in the show, but you know, this executive order that Trump just uh, released, I think really signifies the kind of disconnection with architecture that the general public has compared to those that have invested a lot of time. Or effort into either practicing or or studying or paying attention to architecture. So it, it seems. I mean, in my opinion, it, this is a this is kind of a crisis that I that that we're going through. That in that in a way, people people do need to kind of stay abreast of topics that are may not interest them, but may be unaware at how much it it impacts their lives. So I mean, architecture is clearly one of those. So I I hope that you know I hope that going forward um architecture is is able to kind of get injected more into mainstream publication and and radio and and other forms because i think there will be kind of a a return back i mean i know personally myself you know many years ago when when podcasting really kind of started taking off you know in one of those initial waves and you know and and as the internet grew i i really started following just my my own personal interests but now i feel like i'm reverting back to i'm 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 reading uh newspapers and listening to radio more because i want to get information that is not necessarily my my choice of of uh information to consume so i think that you know there's i'm hoping that that that's going to be a trend that will continue what has been your perspective on on how the city has responded to to DNA and the topics that you bring up i mean do you do you feel like like the general population has responded in a in a similar or different way than the architecture community or design community
1: yeah yes i would say yes because well bridging that gap was always the challenge because the architecture community obviously has a language that is fairly obscure and inaccessible to the general audience. There's also a a, a worldview, a philosophical. There's there's an architectural philosophy, architecture and design philosophy, which is firmly rooted in Bauhaus and modernism, which I think is pretty foreign to most people still. And then and then also architects, by definition want to build. That's the point. Architects don't want to go to a client meeting and then say, well, let me tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't put a building on this site because of the beauty of the site or the history or the this or the that or the other thing architects want to build. So anyway, those three things all in a way mean that architecture, the architecture community has a different set of interests than the general public. The general public like uh, has has taste preferences that are not necessarily in sync at all with the architecture community the general public doesn't in any way speak the language that architects use and number three the general public is not necessarily interested in having a new building per se the general public is interested often in not having a building actually if it's going to be affordable housing that's in their neighborhood. Oh and then also architects are have social goals that are intertwined with their desire to build. So <laughs> so architects will will be very very keen on say um building a block of affordable housing in you name it neighborhood and but then that neighborhood, however much that neighborhood might also be concerned with the homeless, they don't necessarily want that block of housing in their neighborhood so um so you've got different you've really got you've you've really got different value systems that you're and you're trying to kind of bridge the two of them so that's what what, what my stories were it was always a little bit of a struggle was was making these issues relevant. To the general public and kind of explaining, it's sort of explaining and defending the values of the architecture community, which of which I consider myself a part. Explaining those values and why, why cities are improved when those values are well applied, while at the same time being completely sensitive to and cognizant of what the what the general public which of course is not a monolith, but what the general public's values are. And and that's where Warren was persistently a model in my own mind, was because he had that interest in hearing from all the stakeholders. So that's why then when I started doing DNA over the years as I developed it, it more and more became a venue to discuss what was going on in the built environment, but to embrace the perspectives of different stakeholders. And that's what I was sort of always kind of trying to explain while making an argument typically for, you know, the best of the best of architecture. So I don't know if that came across, Paul, but I, I think that's what I was trying to do.
3: So it's what's interesting is that um even from the goats to where you are, where we are right now, there's, they're all intertwined. There's this kind of this idea, this romantic notion of like the slowness of like being this kind of agrarian kind of connection to animals. And there's something very slow about that. Then you're talking about the print media is very slow, doesn't respond very quickly to urgent issues. Whereas podcasts and, and the discussions you would have on KCRW are kind of immediate in the moment. Anybody can pick up a microphone and go out and have a conversation with somebody and get a an opinion. The other stuff that the writers do for New York Times and LA Times and all that takes time to develop, takes time to get at the topic, has to go through editorialism. Oftentimes what comes, what, what the intent is, the, what, the output is different. Readers have to digest it, have to parse through all that stuff, but the podcast is immediate. All of that at the same time, <laughs> you have an architecture group that it was funny. One of the discussions you were talking with a, it was recently, you were talking with a pediatrician who was interested in the built environment. Um, and uh, you asked him um, if he was ever interested in being an architect. And he talked about growing up poor in Newark, New Jersey. And one of the things he said was that struck me. He said it was, he wasn't very creative. But he liked memorization and he liked people. I mean, do architect, I mean, there's this thing that I don't think we get at as architects, <laughs> that we architects don't like people. I mean and that was kind of subtle like a subtle I don't think he intended it that way but at the same time that's been the the, the singular position of most people who look at architects and even inside the profession we don't do a lot of internalized Navel-gazing now has forced us to take a look at at ourselves, and I think the health profession is being forced to examine its own racism. But we don't really, like, we don't really trust that we have people's interests in mind. We kind of, like, we know better, and I feel that too. I feel like when I, I've been a part of community meetings, and not even as an architect, as a, as a community member, and have been shocked by the racism in my local community that was told to me it was very liberal. Shocked racism coming from architects? Well, just, um, no, not from architects per se. But I mean, the idea the community doesn't, like, you know, just being just being connected to a community organization, it's shocking to hear the things that we're trying to do. Like we're trying to build workforce housing or affordable housing and the things that Everybody on the face, that they, they tell the polls, they tell the newspapers, they tell everybody that, yes, we, we want these things to happen. But like you said before, they don't want them in our community. And architects are struggling with, like, how do we, dis, how do we, how do we get our own internal internalized racism? How do we deal with the community's racism? How do we get this connection? And we don't even like people.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 I guess there's a couple of things going on there. Because on the one hand, there's the issue of racism. And that that is its whole thing in itself and then there's whether architects like people or not <laughs> you know irrespective of irrespective <laughs> of the race angle i mean i mean architects want to make everything tidy and efficient and controlled and i mean the re- i went to architecture school and i realized fairly early on that i wasn't going to be an architect and one of the big giveaways to me was one I was extremely gregarious, and I loved just blabbering on to people, you know so um, <laughs> and I realized that that was a kind of a personal attribute that wasn't necessarily particularly helpful in being an architect, but the other thing was that, that I noticed that my handwriting wasn't like all my cohorts, my fellow students' handwriting. all my fellow students had extremely clean, neat, clear, upright handwriting and it, wasn't like they'd all been taught it; they just all had it, and I and I didn't. Mine was rather. If you looked at my handwriting, you'd probably find it fairly hard to read, actually. And um, so, anyway, I I, I very quickly realised that architects are people that really do want to tidy up people's environments and like everything just so and get very annoyed when that just so environment is untidied and we all know that architects love to have their buildings photographed without people in them or if there are people they're sort of posed in such a way that they're kind of architectural rather than doing peopley sort of stuff so anyway where was I going with this? Yeah. Architects. Oh, that's right. That's right. The doctor. Yes, I know the doctor. Dr. Jackson, I think his name is. No, that was an interesting comment. It was an interesting comment that he thought he liked people. Now, it's funny because actually a lot of, I don't think all medics like like people either. I think for them, the human being is a machine and they're going to just Get into that machine with their surgical knives or their pills. But anyway, he, I think, is a doctor that likes people and understands um, that that piece of it. I will, I will say though, just to just to slightly qualify what I said about being gregarious. I definitely realised that I needed to be ultimately in a field that involved talking to people. But I will say that actually having an ability to talk to people, having a kind of having having an easy easygoing persona is very helpful to being an architect and selling your work. You know, I so in that sense, in that sense having kind of an ability to 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 charm people is an attribute architects need to have, but that's not necessarily the same as necessarily liking people or even necessarily being concerned with people's well-being. Now, interestingly, I will say that one of the architects who I have known for years and This is not the way he is presented at all, but I think that Frank Gehry likes people. I think he thinks of people and their comfort when he is thinking about his architecture, I really do. And I say that because I've lived in this apartment building that he designed back in the early 60s. It is so incredibly comfortable. It is so people friendly. It is not A1, it's not class A architecture but it is people friendly and if you go to the disney concert hall for example it's people friendly and i think the reason that frank has has had so many clients and then he's been referred by clients i think because in his in his odd idiosyncratic way the his clients feel like he likes them and so so anyway the liking people part is very important and i don't want to paint all architects with the same brush because of course, there are architects that like people perfectly well. But but it is true that if you think about architects, they very rarely socialise with anyone but themselves. because <laughs> <laughs> um, And it's sort of, why is that? You know, because my husband, who's not an architect, notices that. Whenever we're invited to an architect's party, there's very few people of other professions, you know, or... Oh, other areas. And again, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush because that's certainly not true of everybody. But there does seem to be a few patterns that are there. And one of the patterns is that architects seem to be very comfortable in each other's company. And sort of why is that, you know, or why are they not comfortable in non-architects company?
0: Francis, uh, speaking of of people and, and liking people, are there any people that especially stand out in your memory, from interviews that you that you conducted for DNA over the years, maybe people that surprised you, or or just were you know especially exciting conversations.
1: Well, I mean, it's not an architect, but it, and I already said this to one other magazine, but it was pretty remarkable meeting Elon Musk. I have to say, and and having an interview with him before the Model S was launched onto the market, and just sitting in the car and having him talk having him describe his dashboard.
0: I'm so bummed that I missed that because I remember it was, (laughs) uh, I, I had an invitation to that, to that event. It was a, it was a relatively small event on, on the West side, right? At a, was it at, was it at the Tesla showroom?
1: Yeah, that was an event. That was an event at the Tesla showroom. But before that, I did an interview with him about the car and I went down to Tesla, to SpaceX and sat with him in the car and he talked, talked me through it. And, and, I, I did definitely have that sense of being in the presence of of a sort of very charismatic and truly and truly inventive person. So that was that was, and and also he's quite funny. You know, he's quite funny and loves Monty Python's and has all these. You know beautiful girlfriends, So he was almost like a James Bond character, you know, he's, so that was pretty, that was pretty, um, interesting moment, but gosh, let's think, let's think of, uh, let's think of others. I mean, that's so many people and I don't want to pick out my you know favorite child or whatever
0: I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot with that
1: yes. question it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty
2: difficult question it's yeah you've had so many
0: was <laughs> there anybody that you wished that you had spoken with or interviewed that you never that you never got around to
1: oh yeah that's interesting that's interesting well I definitely wanted to interview Steve Jobs you know and because uh, DNA wasn't just architecture it was it was primarily architecture but it was all sorts of other things and I certainly wrote to the Steve Jobs people a lot, you know. And the other person, I interviewed Rem Koolhaas for the LA Times and then subsequently tried to interview him for DNA and never managed to pin him down except, finally, I have one child and he was suddenly available for an interview when I had just given birth and I couldn't do that interview. And I remember being frustrated about that. But I also wanted to interview Hannah Bleachler, who was the production designer on... On Black Panther, and I interviewed Marvelous Ruthie Mm -hmm. Carter, who was the fashion, who was the costume designer. But I didn't get to talk to Hannah Bleachlow. It was sort of she was suddenly deluged. It became very difficult to reach her. So I definitely wanted to interview her. She's obviously amazing. And who else? i'm I'm sure there's been many that that got away. But there's pe- been people I spoke with too. I, I mean, for sort of i do think I do think one of the bright young talents of our emerging community is a is a woman, Elizabeth Timmy, you know, with l a. Mars. Oh, I yeah. find her incredibly her. clever, you know, clever and provocative, you know, not an easy person, but but she's really, I think, really interesting. and the person to watch.
2: She was one of our first interviewees on the Organic Sessions podcast.
1: Oh, great! Good and for yeah, you. She's lovely
2: to, t- to talk with, and she, she's amazing.
0: You guys, you guys missed it because you were connecting remotely. But the uh, the thing I remember most from our conversation with her was that she came in to our recording studio with a little handmade sign that she took out of her bag and she put in front of her as soon as we sat down in front of the mics. And it said, don't say fuck.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was
2: And then I he told her, you're allowed to it... say fuck on this podcast. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> <Huh>. That's interesting. <laughs> she was delightful.
2: So... I'd love to
0: uh, to kind of look back at 2020 among the four of us at some of the bigger stories. And uh, to to start, I'd like to just kind of quickly touch on on a on a point that I brought up earlier about the distinction between how architects and the general public respond to architectural issues, and address specifically the the new LACMA. Francis, what have you noticed? among people that you've spoken with or people that have listened to your stories about Peter Zumthor's uh, LACMA project? And and what kind of difference have you noticed between the general general public and, and the architectural community?
1: Well, you know, that's an interesting one, because in the past, generally, if there's been a fight over a um, an avant-garde new design, I found architects have defended it and the general public hasn't. With LACMA, and that's broad. That is broadly speaking. But with LACMA, I've actually found, you know, a lot of architects who won't say it publicly, but privately are, are very critical of the of the Zoom tour project. Now, there's some who are ardent supporters, but there's quite a few who are critical of it and didn't, didn't want for a whole number of reasons to sort of put their voices out there publicly. And then I'll run into, say... Design enthusiasts, so that is not architects, but nor, but, but but certainly people with a with a great interest in design. Uh, so I run into design enthusiasts around town who are really excited about the Zoom Tour project and actually really love Zoom Tour and think are really excited that he's coming to town. And then there's the other cohort within the general community that's that just is feeling like that stretch of Wilshire is just changing beyond. Anything they ever remembered of it, you know, it's 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 the May Company is is changing, albeit it's had its revamp, but it's got its sphere going on the back, and then you've got the Peterson, and then you're going to have then you have the Lackmo editions, and and then you we may get the Natural History Museum. So it's sort of what happened to this place that I used to go to when I was a child. You know, it's it's completely transforming, and I've certainly heard from people who remember shopping at May Company or at um, Orbach's. I think it was called Orbach's, you know, the Walton Beckett building. So different strokes for different folks, you know, but this is definitely not one of the architecturally, I guess, you know, sort of class A buildings that, that you're finding all the architects embrace.
0: It's funny that you uh, that you said that that many architects you've spoken with have privately said that they don't like the project. From my perspective, it seems like the only architects that have admitted to liking it have said it in private. It seems like it's it's almost uh, a lot of the architects that I know in LA. Have, it's it's like it's their responsibility to be highly critical of it in a in a negative way.
1: You mean you think they're too negative about it?
0: No, I, I I'm not passing any judgment on on those. I I just it seems like the architects that I've been speaking to about about the new LACMA would be have the ones that have expressed a positive opinion on it are almost ashamed at admitting that. Like it's, it's almost like it's, it's, it's more dangerous to be in (laughs) supportive of it. That's, that's my own perspective. Maybe I just run around with a negative group of negative Nellies, but (laughs) I don't
1: know. No, no, actually, no, no. You're validating what I've heard. I've, uh, this project has not elicited a great deal of love. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I mean, I I personally found myself squarely caught between two views only because I've seen two or three Zoom buildings and they can be absolutely remarkable. So I've been prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. But but there's a lot that, that's very problematic about that design. There is. And yes, that's why you and I hear it. And then, But the public, the so-called general public, you know, Perhaps didn't think the old, and I'm, and I'm, it's complicated because there is a general public that really is sad to lose its memories, see its memories be torn down. But, and then there's another general public that kind of thinks they were a bunch of grotty old buildings and why not get rid of them and replace them with what seems to be this pretty fabulous seeming thing. So, so, but it's definitely, it's not like the Disney Concert Hall, where when that was going through some trouble and was off, was off, came off the rails for a while, architects were publicly very supportive of it. And the general public was writing rude things to the LA Times saying it's like a pile of wet cardboard or, oh, you know, it looks like the earthquake hits. So it's its definitely not been like that.
0: Yeah. I guess that kind of—I mean, I—I I would understand the a, a negative response among the general public because there's kind of a uh, disconnection between modern and modern architecture, contemporary trends in architecture. There's—it uh, seems like—I mean, I think that this can be kind of related to the uh, Trump's executive order. That uh, I guess we can start talking about that. Um, you know, in that a lot of people are in support of this return to classical architecture because that's kind of how they grew up envisioning you know good architecture as being this classic form of architecture Ken, I know that you have uh, some some strong feelings about this executive order um, <laughs> what what are, what are your thoughts
3: well, i mean i you know again, I think the concern is is that this Ascribing a style to um, th- that you have to build by uh, for federal buildings, it just um, again, I think sends the wrong message and it, you know it, it, you have to look at the people who were involved in, in putting this together, in particular individual, Justin Shubo, uh, that right side of the spectrum in terms of the politics. But this also kind of aligns with the the, the general tone of the of the Trump movement. The Trumpism movement, which is um, this far right nationalism that that uh, this kind of architecture seems to represent for most people. So, you know, and this seems problematic. And, you know, I guess, you know, you can get into the, the, the theory about it. I just always feel that when I look at this kind of architecture, and it's deemed that this is what we're going to do, and then it reinforces that power structure that's in place, that classism. Classical architecture is really about centering kind of federal power, and this is how we're going to exert our power in this country (laughs) through this kind of architecture.
2: I have to say, I really appreciate it, and I am not generally a fan of Jeff Speck because I feel like he has some some incorrect attitudes towards architects, but he wrote a letter that has been all over Twitter today and I appreciate that what he pointed out is that the Civic Art Society was supposed to be about inclusiveness, basically, within design and representing as much as possible within the D.C. Uh, area. And um, this move, which was spearheaded and pushed by the Civic Art Society, is completely the opposite of that. It's absolutely about shutting down any kind of voice that might bring m- something new to the table or something diverse to the table. Or Yeah. So I really appreciated it. Shout it out. On Twitter today to Jeff Speck for um, uh, for this letter that he wrote uh, condemning the, the the change and I, but I'll also say that frankly I'm not all that worried about it because I do think it will get overturned as soon as the new administration comes in but maybe I'm being naive I don't know Francis what do you think
1: I I thought it would be I assumed it would be overturned I assumed yeah. I, I assumed that it hadn't really got off the ground and that it will be overturned I mean. I mean, it did all to me have echoes of the 1980s when Prince Charles came out and made yeah. the case for classical yeah. architecture. So I guess to me there was also yes, it embodies some of those um, some of those semiotics of power, I guess one might call it that you just talked about, Ken. But, but there's also there's also just something about traditionalist architecture that seems to um, that architects really do need to evaluate, you know. With Prince Charles, he wasn't—he wasn't—he wasn't about Parliament buildings necessarily. He was about well, at the time, I guess, what triggered him was the um, was the National Gallery. It was going to the National Gallery, but then he proceeded to try and put his theories of of defending classical or preserving national neoclassical architecture into a village. You know, he started building a village in Cornwall or something so he he thought that from the large to the small you know traditionalist architecture was more kind of becoming and that's what people wanted and 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 it's you know just to just to put put this in as a style issue rather than a kind of race and power uh, in federal power issue, I think, say, of Palm Springs. You know, Palm Springs has an ongoing kind of debate, let's put it gently, debate between <laughs> the modernists and the fans of the Spanish style architecture that's there. Neither of them are indigenous to the region by any stretch, but there's something about the Spanish style that somehow is more convincingly authentic or vernacular or something. And And a lot of people are far more delighted by Spanish-style architecture than they are by modernists, which suggests they're more interested in curves, softer buildings, you know, pitched roofs, Mm -hmm. terracotta tiles, nice ornament, you know, all of which we all appreciate in many, many situations. Usually when it's old, we just don't like it when it's new. We don't like it. So I think architects do need to actually have a conversation amongst themselves about sort of why did the general public jump to this? There is something that does go beyond the Trump thing. And, you know, we do know there are some of these very austere, modern buildings that have gone up that, that frankly are a bit off-putting, you know. They are. Then I love, love, love contemporary architecture, modern architecture. I really do. But there's still not all of them make the cut, you know, in terms of being edifying and delightful places to be in. There is there is often a coldness. There is often there's something lacking in terms of people feeling comfortable. So so, yes, hopefully this thing will be overturned. Hopefully it was just, you know, a, a bad moment. But but that doesn't mean that architects shouldn't shouldn't ask themselves, you know, wh- why did this touch a nerve? You know, why did it touch a nerve? And why don't architects like pitched roofs? You know, <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we are seeing a, re- a, re- a resurgence of interest in postmodernism. And what postmodernism engages with is trying to, I guess, reintegrate some of those more deep-set appeals to human sort of comfort or, or or people's idea of home or people's idea of people's idea of what something's meant to be and it's interesting that that revival of interest in postmodernism has coincided with the Trump rule
0: yeah that's a uh, it's a it's a complex topic you know because should architects be focused on providing what the general public thinks they want when it's based on an architecture that or it's based on not that much thought given towards architecture and kind of its place in in history. What, what do you guys think about AIA's uh, response to the order? That their their latest response that came out yesterday.
1: Oh, what is it? What was their latest response?
0: They they announced that they plan on on pushing for a reversal under the Biden administration. They they came out against it. You know, stating that you know that's not it's not uh, the government's responsibility to to dictate a, any certain style. Do you think it's important that the AIA is making a stance like that?
1: Yes, but I also think. I also think that, does anyone care what the AIA says apart from architects?
0: (laughs) Exactly. I guess that's the question I'm trying to ask. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in a way, I was kind of shocked that uh, AIA would so quickly step in, given how much we bashed them, us, I am an AIA member, after stepping in so quickly as soon as Trump got elected. Uh, You know, I, I kind of felt like the AIA would take a slower response, but... I mean, I'm glad that they say they don't that they're not for the executive order. But on the other hand, I just uh, the bigger question to me is executive orders. I don't want Biden to come in and with an executive order overturn this. I think we need to have, as you're saying, Francis, with these conversations that you are are going to be having with the uh, go wisdom to go. I would like to have a more nuanced discussion about architecture in the built environment and what does it mean to the community, rather than just have Trump say I'm going to do X, so Biden comes in and says I'm going to do Y. That 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 doesn't serve any of us as a community.
0: <laughs> Speaking of the AIA, <laughs> another another big stance that they took recently was uh, their announcement against death chambers and and architects uh, designing death chambers. Ken, thoughts. Mm-hmm.
3: Thoughts, lots of thoughts. So the AIA was caught flat-footed because they issued. I mean, look, I think part of like what Donna is saying um, and what everybody's been saying is their rapid response team is in uh, uh, full. Like uh, they got their um, they got their comeuppance when um, after the George Floyd murder um, they put out a very tone-deaf response. Um, so I think they've 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 full course corrected here, and I think this is you know, um, the AD SPR has been working trying to get AIA to change their ethics around death chambers and torture facilities and and things of that nature. I think it's fantastic. I think, look, it's a first step. It's, and I think there's a lot of clamoring from, you know, and bitching and moaning from the architecture community. Well, what are you going to do? You woke ass social justice warriors. But the thing is, is that you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can change our <laughs> ethics. We can change our, you know, ethics to 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 model what we've, you know, I mean, it's interesting that this wasn't already in there. I mean, we're supposed to be about health, safety, and welfare. Those are the three things that the AIA stands for. And that's the thing they've been beating everybody over the head with for, for decades. And yet we're designing, we allow um, our design professionals to uh, hang AIA monikers at the end of their names And they design death chambers and are part of torture policies and designing walls that separate people. So we can change our ethics and then we can start attacking the issue head on. Whether or not that happens broadly within the profession, if so-called architects decide to leave the AIA fine, that means we're winning. So I'm all for that. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I land on that.
1: I mean, I personally absolutely detest big ag. I think big ag is vile. Does that mean that therefore I should say to that that I should I should agitate for architects to not design facilities that coop up chickens or cows in in the most hideous conditions, you know, should I do that because that's and by the way I completely agree, you know, with the with the racist argument. I guess I guess the question is, is it up to the profession to make to dictate these terms, or is it up to individuals and their moral code? So is it up to the individual firm to simply flat out say, no, I won't do that project because I don't support death chambers? Should this be should this be a collective position or should it be up to individuals? So I guess I guess it's sort of once you open the floodgates of setting up things you you're not allowed to build where does that take you i suppose i suppose i suppose it's it's not clear to me which side you should come on and that's not to say that in any way i defend death chambers i don't of
2: course I don't. no i mean yeah. you know, i think you're, you're you're coming at it from a very yes. again a very nuanced attitude of what you know how does it relate to other questions like that's a really nuanced analysis to say what how many things will it affect? What how would it really, you know, and with that and then I go back to Phil Freelon and our amazing interview with Phil Freelon. He was probably my favorite guest we've ever had on sessions and saying that he just started out saying, I'm not going to do a certain kind of project uh, you know a certain kind of program because that's not what i want my firm to focus on i want to do more community oriented structures and he just made that decision for himself
1: yes i mean i have i have a friend who is an architect friend who's building in saudi arabia i have another architect friend who said he would never build in saudi arabia who's right who's right the the first one says i'm part of the new world that's coming to saudi arabia which by the way is Amplifying choices and freedoms for women and 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 many others, and the other one says, "No, they're a vile, despotic nation that treat women very badly, and we shouldn't be working there." So, I mean, which is right? When Rem Koolhaas did the um, CCTV building in Beijing, you know, at the time, people said they raised questions about him seeming to validate. A, an oppressive regime and he said no 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 through my building I'm going to help put and I'm completely summarizing and making up what he said because I don't have the words in front <laughs> of me but I vaguely recollect that he made the case that his building was going to be an expression of a you know burgeoning kind of freer society so it's incredibly tricky that one it really is and then it gets back to the question of what is what is what what is the AIA for like is it meant to get people work is it meant to take uh principal positions and the two don't necessarily go in hand in hand
0: yeah i think it's <laughs> a i mean i what i what i like about AIA's press release i guess you know or or stance that they're taking on this is that it's it's bringing the conversation to to the industry and it's perhaps it's making some people aware that were not previously about the problems involved in in designing spaces like this. You know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement this year has really shown us that that there is a lot for our entire population to kind of think about and learn as as we you know as we evolve. So I, I, I'm I'm glad to see that that the industry's primary organization is is at least bringing it up as as a point uh, to discuss. Moving on, I was thinking we could just kind of touch on a few of the other topics that that we were talk- thinking about discussing today. Working from home, what kind of impact do you do you feel like this new remote work lifestyle that we've all become accustomed to this year? What kind of impact that's going to make on architecture?
1: Who do you want to have answer first, Paul?
0: Fra- uh, Francis, <laughs> do you do you have uh, <laughs> thoughts that you'd like to share on
1: that? <laughs> Well, it obviously affects architects in a number of ways. It obviously affects those architects whose job it is is to build workplace, you know, so that's, that's obviously an issue. It's certainly impacted the way people think about the nature of the workplace. That's a cliche to trot out at this stage. I, for one, definitely hope that in building future workplaces, architects will take, will draw on some of the benefits that many of us have found from working at home. So for example, When I'm at home, yes, I miss the company of the workplace, I do, but boy, do I not miss the cold air conditioning. To be in my own space, just having the breezes blowing through the window, just having a thermal environment that is the way I like it has actually been great. And ditto for the sound environment. You know, I, I think that there's certain sensory aspects of the workplace that could use some more sensitivity to the workers, and I personally have been surprised at how much I've enjoyed being at home because it's it's sensorially more pleasant. So that's been one of the unexpected lessons physically about the shelter in place. Again, underscore of course that doesn't comp- doesn't necessarily compensate for what you're missing in terms of the human engagement, but it's certainly. It's certainly key. And I also, I'm not alone in finding that I've enjoyed the fact that I happen to look out of the window on a tree. You know, I love looking out on the tree. I've walked around the neighbourhood a million times. I happen to have a neighbourhood where there's lots of lovely plantings to look at, you know, and... I think I know a lot of other people that have enjoyed that too. So again, it gets back to this sort of sensory aspect of our workplace. We've tended to create workplaces that are different from our homes. You know, home does one thing, and workplace does another thing. And I wonder if there's takeaways from our home environments that we've spent a lot of time in that could feed into the way we design our work environments. Yeah, I think
2: for me it has has, uh, and I've had a similar experience. I loved when we first. When on, on lockdown, I really loved working at home. I lived in a different house than I've since moved, but my access to the outdoors was so lovely. It was just wonderful to be there every day, to be in that environment and enjoy it. But it really has pushed for me the the, the concern about the fact that people like us, I think I can say, I speak for all of us, that we love our work. And so having our work connected in some way to our home is is acceptable if not good and wonderful in fact in my case. I live my, my work. But for people who don't, it's I think it's a lot harder. I think I do think there are people who really will want to have that separation. And maybe some of those People, you know, build a, a bedroom office and when the it's five o'clock, they shut the door to that room and they go into their house and, you know, they make a separation in some way that is architecture related. But for me, the work from home flexibility is wonderful because I like being in my home and I like having my work and my home life, you know, connect.
1: Yeah. And I should say thank you, Donna. I want to underscore that. I'm blessed. I live in an apartment, but it's an apartment that happens to be in a neighborhood that happens to have a lot of greenery. And so I should say that I understand that that's a privilege and that not every neighborhood has that. And that if you don't and you're holed up at home in really a kind of a miserable neighborhood, that's pretty darn awful. So if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that home life Ideally, is better for everyone that's stuck at home and that we do really, really increase our efforts to get shade trees into neighbourhoods that don't have shade trees and and make those kinds of amendments. But meanwhile, as people start to go back into the office, which I think they will, you know, I don't think everybody's going to be working at home forever. Um, then, the, 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 But the, the workplace does kind of learn from the better things about working at home. So um, so maybe it's finding those balances.
0: Ken, how has uh, has working from home been for you?
3: (laughs) I, you know, I I love it. Um, I think what it's, it's interesting because I'm able to connect more with the architecture community by being at home, um, either through uh, the lecture series um, that people have been doing a lot of. um, That's the one thing that's been really fascinating is that the online events have been ridiculously, just a tremendous amount of events that are online now. And so now I can work and have that on at the same time. I'm mm-hmm. not saying I couldn't yeah. have that on at work in my job, but it's something very comfortable about having that here. But for the most part, what's been really enlightening for me is that the greater sense of autonomy that I have and, and, and the ability to, by working from home, no one's really, you know, I'm I'm there, I'm glued to my work from generally from like six, seven, to like three or four um but if I need to pop in and get in on something, I don't have to go drive somewhere else to to go and do that which you know in a few weeks is gonna be ridiculous but um right yeah, it was interesting I, it was on a um there was um there was a discussion about this earlier in, in the pandemic and one of the architects local architects was talking about how she didn't think that uh, uh, that this was gonna change much um and my partner who's um who works for the county, um, is part of a results-only work environment. So she works exclusively from home and she's she's following the data on that. And the data is suggesting that like 54%, I think is the number, plan on going back into the office, but that 18% are gonna stay working from home. And the one thing that I think is gonna start to happen um, because of this experience is the idea who you work for and where you work for that main company is going to change. Um, so working from home is going to lead to the next step, which is I can work for a company that's based in Seattle, but I can live in Minneapolis. And it's starting to happen. That That's the one thing I'm looking for. I'm looking for that next step, and it's starting to occur. So I'm kind of excited for that.
0: Yeah, I've been quite enjoying working from home, even though I've been working from our empty office most days. I mean, the flexibility, I think it's introduced a... A new type of uh, freedom in in how we juggle personal and, and our work lives. That said, it's there's definitely a drawback to not having our team all together. That you know it's become it's become very evident uh, this year how how important face to face communication is. I mean, from from architects in the industry that I've been speaking with, you know, a lot of principals or owners of large medium size firms around the country the general consensus is that everybody really feels like it's like we're not going to be going back to to the way we worked before because there is that that requirement to be in person but we're we're also discovering that that there are so many benefits with having that kind of flexibility so um it'll be inter- interesting to see. So I was thinking to end the conversation, we could all maybe share something that we are especially looking forward to in, in 2021. And maybe we can just, uh, you know, ignore the obvious end of the pandemic, which I think we're all hoping for <laughs> primarily. But um Francis is there anything in in 2021 that's especially making you excited?
1: Well, well I guess, you know, to connect right back to how this conversation began, I guess I would like to see a less shrill tone in the media. And if the change of administration can can cause that, you know, just by sort of bringing down the temperature, I think I think that would be a a good thing. Definitely. I do want to go visit my mother, but I guess that's a pandemic related <laughs> <laughs> That's a pandemic related um wish.
0: Absolutely. Donna.
2: Oh, uh, it everything I think right now is somewhat pandemic related because it has impacted our lives so much. But I am really in one part dreading the potential for evictions coming up in, in the world and um in the United States and and people losing more housing. I've been trying to find housing for someone recently, and it is just impossible near next to impossible to find good housing. And so I feel like there really is a what I'm optimistic about is I do feel like there's a groundswell not just of architects not just of urbanists but of people in general saying we we need to do something about the housing situation and and I would hope that with the pandemic and people staying at home it ties into the idea of a dignified place to live not just a place to put your head down at night but a um you know a dignified healthful supportive living space. So I'm I'm excited to see housing continue I hope to improve in 2021 and the conversation around it continue to improve. We'll see.
0: That's a good one. Ken, what are you most looking forward to?
3: Um kind of with uh Francis here, I'm looking forward to boring. We <laughs> I did some election defense on on the on election day and UNTRA was uh boring is uh boring is good and um Boy, was good. Yeah, so <laughs> and that's what we spent. We spent you know twelve hours uh, guarding polls, and uh, nothing happened, and that was a success. So I'm looking forward to you know, I mean, at least not hearing the president's name every se- every five seconds on Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, and then hopefully the people that are being put into positions of uh, in housing and in um, education could pull some you know some. Rabbits out of hats and change policies and hold uh, state governments and local governments to account for for housing. That would be great. Um, personal level, just looking forward to you know my next venture. So I'm trying to uh, move forward. So
2: that's about it. Paul, what about you?
0: Well, I guess just as obvious as uh, as the pandemic ending, which I said that we shouldn't include, is is uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to having an adult in the white house and and <laughs> you know having somebody that i can you know not not uh worry every day about you know my my children's future and, and um, how, how this country is being led, especially from, you know, from a global perspective and, you know, the the country being a laughing stock. But I'm looking forward to that. I'm also <laughs> looking forward. I'm looking forward to traveling, but tra- uh, traveling more intentionally. I mean, one thing that I've learned this year is that a lot of the work travel that I've been doing in the last 10, 20 years has been completely unnecessary. So, you know, I would like to I would like to travel more because and travel less for work and more for personal fulfillment. And you know, now that I've spent the last nine months, you know, without flying, without leaving the state, I I feel like I've I've had a renewed interest in in uh seeing other parts of the world and experiencing other cultures. And so that's that's what I'm hoping that I'll be able to do more of. And 2021.
2: Well, cheers. That's, yeah, more meaningful experiences for all of us yes. in 2021. Yeah.
1: And, and I should just say that actually, um, I'm glad you brought up housing, Donna, because m- that's going to be my next project is I'm writing a book about oh. multifamily housing. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I can't wait. I didn't, wait. <laughs> I didn't I'm, but specifically multifamily housing in LA as fulfilling a sort of particular need for community in a place that's quite fragmented. And then when you overlay that on very good design, you know, whether it be the Bungalow Court or the, you know, Richard Neutra Strathmore Apartments or Village Green or pretty interesting multifamily. Now, you know, you've got, you've got a really interesting kind of residential type that has always been in the shadows of the single family home, and I think it's super important as we head into our older futures, as we as we live in cities where land values make it impossible. To buy the single family house and sustainability needs make it indefensible, you know. Really, really good socially oriented multifamily housing is the future.
3: So it sounds like it sounds like just from the description you're gonna be focusing more on multi generational. Um, households. Then.
1: Yes, in as much as what interests me are the w- are what one friend has called worlds within worlds, as mm-hmm. in again whether it be an eight-unit bungalow court or the latest Lock and Hurley project in Career Town, which happens to have become a kind of condenser for you know people in the creative community who've just sort of found their way there and now spend all their time hanging out on the roof of the place together having really found sort of a place to call home you know when it's not a home they own it's not a home they own but it's the place they feel is home and it's because they have they have community and so yes sometimes absolutely and my own building is a six unit building courtyard with a courtyard little courtyard and it's completely multi-generational and, yeah. and it's, it's lovely. I've never wanted to leave here. I've just, <laughs> because I have felt at home, you know, I felt at home. And so it's about the definition of home, which is slightly different.
3: That's actually my kind of my direction this next year is of focusing on small scale multifamily because the Minneapolis went through a 2040 revisioning. So they're upscale up zoning, um, single family lots. And, uh, that's my focus going into 2021 is to do a develop design build uh, focused on small scale multifamily that is um, not rooted in these gigantic buildings with long corridors. You know, in COVID, I, I think the the COVID shock is going to have rippling effects that are going to last um, for, for, for a few years, um, even after we get inoculated. Um, I think there's still going to be this. I think there's a there's something out there that is going to speak to this idea about having independent connections and not having these long, unhealthy seeming corridors of like uh, warehousing people. And I'm thinking about small scales.
2: So, Ken spent some time researching for the for today, uh, Francis, by listening to your your episodes, but I did a Google search and found this um, article about your apartment, which I, um, which is in a Frank Gehry early design building, correct? Yes, yes. And it's lovely. And I have to say, I tweeted it today. Your living room is the perfect room. It's just delightful. Everything about it is just <laughs> delightful. And that, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is what you think of as a sense of home and it's comfortable and it expresses yourselves and it's, yeah, it's just, but, but, all of that is your personality, it, it, you know, it's supported by the fact that it started with a space that is uses light really well, uses views beautifully. You know, it's just, it's a delightful building. So I, we'll put the link to that article in the show notes.
1: Oh, lovely. Well, thank you very much yeah. indeed. Thank you. And I should say, Ken, we did a show after you passed that upzoning. We were all very jealous in LA. It was like, whoa, <laughs> Minneapolis is, is doing what we should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> because i live in a neighborhood i live in a neighborhood called ocean park which is pretty much r3 is that right is that right paul it's like mostly single family houses and then multi-unit and it's lovely it's lovely because it's a blended neighborhood and so many neighborhoods in la are not blended at least not starting from the sort of seven when they started killing the dingbats and then and then we got into this, in this exclusionary, you know, single family home only, R one only, right. and it's been the death. It's been the yeah. death of creative housing, and so anyway, I love what you're doing in Minneapolis, and everybody's yeah. watching and thinking, how can we pass it too?
3: Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a, tr- it's yeah. a tricky, it's definitely a tricky situation on the. On the ground, it's, um, you know, we're, what architects are not developers, and which is good. I'm glad they're struggling with it because I think the puzzle is to, is an interesting thing. And I think that's why architects like doing what they do. So typical Minneapolis lots are 40 by 129, which is about 5,200 uh, square feet. Um, so trying to figure out how you fit a multifamily with an FAR of 0.5 on a, on a 5,200 square foot lot is you know you're getting just under 2600 square feet so trying to figure out how you do a three a triplex on that the developers are complaining incessantly like we can't do it we can't make it work and I'm like well because you don't want to hire an architect to actually figure out the problem and so I'm spending my time sketching incessantly thinking I can sol- I can I can get this to work and I'm going to build it and I'm going to de- and I think this can I I think it can happen just not in the you know it's not going to elicit it's not going to give me tremendous bank, but I think I can, I think the problem is solved and I think Minneapolis can solve
1: it. Oh, I'd love to see what you come up with.
0: Well, Francis, uh, this book I'm, I'm really excited about. There couldn't be a better time uh, to write a book about multifamily housing in Los Angeles. So that, that will be eagerly anticipated. Please keep us posted on that. And, and I know that you're, you've already got plans for kind of a, a variation of DNA in 2021 and, and a, a new radio series, I believe, on, on KCRW. So that'll be great to hear your voice again on, on the radio. But please keep us posted so that we can let our audience know how to follow you now that we'll all be missing your voice on on the radio. And thank you so much for for joining us today for this special year-end episode.
1: Well, I'm very touched to be invited. I really am. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for reading the articles and listening to the... Episodes, I'm I'm very, very touched. So 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 thank you. And I could use a bit of help actually with the getting the word out because I've 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 relied on the on the infrastructure of KCRW for the last twenty-two years and now I have to figure out how to do it myself.
0: Um. <laughs> well, we're always here.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. It's been wonderful talking with you. Likewise. Thank you so Likewise. Thank you. And have, have very and happy have... holidays.
0: Happy holidays to you, too. And
2: we'll see you next year.
1: Yes. Bye, everyone.
0: Bye. Well, that concludes our show for this week and for this year. We wish all of our listeners the happiest of holidays. We'll be back in the new year with new shows. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions about this podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, Sessions, or with hashtag ARK You can also send us an email to connect at rconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a comment and rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next year.